Greenfield Talk 1041. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this show on a Monday. Sunny, a little bit of patchy fog out there, so be cautious. Want to make sure you get wherever it is you're going safely. We don't want you to find yourself in any sort of damage. We've got... Um, of course, the Friday Road Show uh, coming up on Friday. I'm prepping you early here, prepping you early, and we'll be kicking off Nick's favorite things, at scramblers, um, and we're going to wrap up and we'll be talking about this through the week. We've been running promos for it, of course, uh, and it's going to wrap up with our happy hour at Retro Metro four to six all day long. We're going to be hitting a number of different establishments and coming to you on Facebook Live, also on the air, uh, talking about just some different Christmas ideas. Help you help you out as uh, best as possible there. We've got all that information at ksgf.com Santa's Angels as well. You can also go to register tickets. Are we still doing Aladdin tickets? Let's see here. Was was that last Yeah, okay. I think it was Sunday was Well the last we do have chance. Alton Brown tickets. Oh, yeah. Culinary superstar Alton Brown going to be at Juanita K on Wednesday, December 7th. Uh, so if you text the name Alton, oh, I didn't know we were doing a text one here. Wow. I know. Uh, to 417-447-5743. It's our the American Transmissions Talk and Text Line. That will get you entered. Uh, I don't know if it's case sensitive, but the notation that I have been given, it is all lowercase, Alton, A-L-T-O-N, and uh, the show is called Live Beyond the Eats, the Holiday Variant. I I was not aware of who this was, but I'm not one that really is into the cooking show world. Uh, It's my understanding People who are definitely, you know, huge fans or at yeah. least know who he is. I've heard a lot of people mm. that are actually really yeah. excited about this because I was in the same boat as you. I didn't know who it was. Yeah. Uh, I thought, oh, it must be a country artist. That I, I, wasn't I thought aware. that too. <laughs> because, you know, every so when these shows comes through, I'll you know, be approached and they'll say, hey, is this something that you think would be a good fit? And I was like, well, who is this? And I, oh, oh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Uh, I think that uh, that'll be something a lot of our listeners would enjoy. Uh, um, Checking out. I don't even know what is included in a live Beyond the Eats holiday. I I don't know if they. I don't know what it is. I hope there's taste testing. Do you think? I hope they like shoot food out to yeah, the audience instead in a of p- like a t-shirt. Cannon. Yeah, instead of a t-shirt cannon. Yeah, Here's a steak. Mm. <laughs> steak. Uh, well, it's holiday variant, so I'm guessing that it there'd be some. Christmas feel to it, maybe a little Hanukkah as well. I don't know, but uh, yeah, just text Alton to four four seven KSGF to get entered for that. And I believe, I guess that would just be this week because that event is next Wednesday. All right, um, we're gonna get the latest news with Jason Ryma, and I wanted to share a, a piece with you on uh, Georgia has begun early voting, and I I don't believe with the early voting in Georgia that Herschel Walker is going to win. I just, Democrats have rigged this game and Republicans have allowed it. What is so just apropos regarding Georgia and the Democrats taking advantage of these new election laws and the early voting is the fact that they were running around calling these election laws Jim Crow 2.0. Major League Baseball pulled out, oh, this was going to just really 
really disenfranchised voters, disproportionately affecting minorities, and uh, Jim Eagle even, Joe Biden called it, and and you had all these calls for boycotts, and there are tremendous tax advantages to the world of film that uh, a lot of, uh, draw a lot of filmmakers to Georgia, big time. Uh, and, uh, you know, they were talking about not filming shoot. I believe some even announced they were going to not shoot film, uh, there because of these horrible laws. And yet Democrats are the ones who are disproportionately benefiting from it. And I think what we could very well see is a race close enough that if it were not for early voting, Herschel Walker would win. Warnock would not. But I think that Warnock probably will win because of the early voting. And so far... It appears as if that's the trajectory things are on, and Jason Sneed explains how this is working specifically to their advantage, and I want to share that because it's important for us to know. It's it's enlightening, but at the same time, it's a little disheartening because you just watch, and this is another one of those instances where Republicans were responsible for setting this up. And, of course, they get accused and labeled as being bigots and racist all for doing what? Creating a system that makes it easier for Democrats to win elections. It's just total madness. Jason Ryman with the latest news update. Police say that foul play is not suspected after a body was found near a creek bed in El Dorado Springs. It happened Sunday afternoon in the 100 block of North Jackson Street. The Highway Patrol says two men from India drowned Saturday at Lake of the Ozarks. Witnesses called 911 after hearing calls for help. The body of one man was recovered Saturday night near the main channel of Bagnell Dam. The other man was pulled from the water the next morning. A federal judge has denied a request from a 19-year-old woman to allow her to watch her father's death by lethal injection. That decision upholds a Missouri law that bars anyone under the age of 21 from witnessing an execution. Kevin Johnson is set to be executed Tuesday for killing a Kirkwood, Missouri police officer. Johnson's lawyers have appeals pending that seek to spare his life. His daughter had sought to attend the execution. The ACLU filed an emergency motion with a federal court in Kansas City. I'm Jason Rima. You're listening to Springfield's Talk 1041. Now that first alert forecast sponsored by St. Clair of the Ozarks. Home improvement, sunny, patchy fog this morning. High of 55. Tonight, cloudy 45. Mostly sunny, 66 tomorrow and then only 40. For a high on Wednesday coming up, early voting already begun in Georgia's Senate runoff, runoff, and here's how Democrats pulled it off. Here's how this is to their advantage. That in just moments, traffic update. I'm Nick Rich. Georgians have many reasons to be grateful Thanksgiving, but a runoff election free from partisan lawsuits, not one of them amid its contentious campaign between Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock and GOP challenger Herschel Walker. Georgia Democrats called in Mark Elias, the lawyer behind the 2016 Russian collusion hoax, to force Georgia to allow an extra day of early voting on the Saturday following Thanksgiving. This would have been this past Saturday. Elias shopped around for an activist judge likely to grant him an easy win, and he found one. The GOP eventually appealed, but the day before Thanksgiving, the Georgia Supreme Court refused to block the lower court's decision. That's a disappointing outcome that sets aside the black and white text of the actual law. As the Honest Election Project pointed out in our brief, Georgia's election code clearly states that if the second Saturday before the runoff election, 
follows a Thursday or Friday public holiday, early voting should not take place on that Saturday. The provision is meant to give election workers an extra day off over Thanksgiving weekend. After working long hours for weeks during the midterms, Georgia's election workers have surely earned it. The impact on Georgia's voters, meanwhile, was minimal. Voting in Georgia is easy, as the midterm election proved. For the runoffs, the law guarantees Georgians a minimum of five days to vote, and everyone can vote by mail or on Election Day. With so much riding on the outcome of the Senate runoff, Georgia Democrats are looking for every edge. That's why Mark Elias' lawsuit did not seek to compel early voting statewide on November 26th, but simply allow it. Now, that is a distinction with a difference. Elias's bet was that the big metropolitan counties, such as Fulton County, which contains Atlanta, would be far more likely to have the resources to pull off last-minute holiday voting. Rural, less populated counties, on the other hand, would be far less likely to pull off the extra day of voting, especially with little notice. So what he's explaining here is that... Elias did not say, he, he wasn't arguing before the courts, that everyone, that all of the counties have to do this, have to violate the law and allow election, or, uh, um, early voting on that first Saturday after the holiday. But, if, but they can if they want to. And the reason for that is because the, the areas that are run by Democrats are the big areas that are heavily populated and had the capabilities to actually be able to carry it out successfully. This is why he did not push for a mandate. This is why he did not see for all the talk about making sure that voters aren't disenfranchised. He wasn't interested in voters in red counties being disenfranchised, he only apparently was concerned about those in the blue counties. So far, they know, the bet seems to be paying off. Major counties, which heavily favored Warnock in the November 8th midterm election, have overwhelmingly embraced the extra day of runoff voting. Comparatively few Conservative counties representing a far smaller subset of the state's population have followed suit. The bottom line, Elias is grabbing a bonus day of voting that Democratic counties are disproportionately taking advantage of. Partisan tactics like this one are nothing new for the former top lawyer of Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. After 2020, Elias tried to overturn election results in two U.S. House races lost by Democrats and this year fought mightily to keep North Carolina's Green Party off the ballot in order to deny progressive Tar Heel voters an alternative to voting temp Democrat. Now, it's sort of like uh, what we had with Crystal Quaid and the independent African-American she fought hard to get off the ballot. Now, Elias has brought his partisan antics to Georgia. Before filing suit, he helped concoct an absurd narrative that a defunct holiday that once celebrated Robert E. Lee justified rewriting the state's laws for partisan gain. And he's touting this case on Twitter as a victory for voting access, when in truth his motives appear far more cynical and desperate. After all, Georgia Republicans bested Democrats in early voting this year. The midterm saw record early voter turnout, with more than 2.5 million Georgians casting ballots by mail or early in person. Governor Brian Kemp won that early vote by before crushing the election day vote and cruising to re-election. 
Same occurred in Florida, where early voting turnout heavily favored Republicans and the GOP carried counties that had not gone red in decades. Early in the runoff, Governor Kemp reportedly put his team at Warnock's disposal. It is no mystery, then, why Georgia Democrats would fear a fair fight and instead call in Elias to stack the deck. No amount of smug tweeting to the contrary can make Elias's strategy any less transparently partisan. Soon, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear a case that could curb Elias's partisan electioneering for good. If the court rules in that case that lawmakers, not judges, write the laws that govern how elections are conducted, Elias's opportunities for mischief will significantly be curtailed. Until then, every state is vulnerable to the antics now unfolding in Georgia. For the sake of our, quote, democracy, progressives should stop trying to win elections in the courts. After all, votes deserve fair and honest elections with rules and make it easy to vote and hard to cheat. That Jason Sneed, executive director of Honest Elections Project Action. The Democrat Party. And these attorneys, these election deniers like Mark Elias, who go to court and spend a tremendous amount of money trying to overturn elections, something that if you're a Republican, of course, you are called an insurrectionist. Every time these people push for some sort of change or alteration in the election laws, it's for one reason and one reason only. Because they believe it is that one step closer to making sure that they have one-party rule and that they can just coast from election to election to election, just like they do in the inner cities. And any time Republicans compromise on election integrity bills, allowing these windows to exist... And the the naivety oftentimes, well, I mean, we put in this protection or that protection. Do you not understand they find judges that they know are left wing and will side with them regardless of what the law says? I don't know how many times Republicans have to watch this play out before they realize the game. You cannot win a game if you refuse to even acknowledge the rules as they've been set up or acknowledge who gets to break the rules whenever they want? You're, you're just you're you're playing blind, and unfortunately, it's the people who do care about voter integrity who suffer. Springfield's Talk 104.1. I'm Nick Reed. You're listening to Nick Reed in the morning on Springfield's Talk 104.1. American Transmissions Talk and Text Line 447 KSGF on Friday. My Pillow CEO Mike Lindell revealed that he intends to announce a bid to run for chairman of the Republican National Committee. He said on his video podcast, The Lindell Report, quote, guys, if you support me running against Rona McDaniel, please email me. We've got to save our country. We can't have the RNC out there if they can't change. I've said it before. They need to change what they're doing based on the current footprint in the country. You need a different input to get a different output. Current RNC chairwoman Rona McDaniel has already indicated that she plans to seek another term for the position, which she has held since 2017. Representative Lee Zeldin, Republican of New York, is also reportedly interested in running but not officially declared yet. Uh, Lindell's bid is likely going nowhere, they note. Frankly, he should be focusing on building his business. Now, whether he, well, he, he probably does not have the... Um, yeah, the, the the path of likelihood to uh, to to get that position, but he is making a point that I think many of us 
are seen, and that is you know, if, if you don't change who you are and the way you do things, then why would you expect a different outcome? And when you look at these leader, leadership positions within the Republican Party, all they want to do is blame game and say it's Trump's fault. And you either have success or excuses. You cannot have both. And what we hear are excuses coming out of Republican leadership. Mitch McConnell being one of those. Um, and I, I just, I don't, as an individual person, when I look at the leadership and I'm told the same people are going to be in charge, making these same decisions that have always been made, that does not make me enthusiastic. It also makes me feel, and I know many of you as well, and the large, probably the, the, the most needed portion of the base is is a detachment. There's a, what what is the point here? There's actually a great piece, and I, I'm going to share parts of it with you, titled The Core Battle Within the Republican Party, The Last Refuge. And it, it's noting that in reality, when you, when you look at the DNC and the RNC, they're both private corporations with no affiliation to government, noting that that is a difficult shift in thinking to appropriately understand but the party system is in U.S. politics revolves around two clubs and feed them from the same corporate trough and position for influence and affluence within a political dynamic that they control. As long as there's no challenge, the clubs operate without issue. However, when there's a battle for control of the corporation, a battle that will ultimately determine the financial outcome, the internal battle becomes the priority. 2024 is going to be the election season where we see this corporate battle explode inside the Republican group. Decades of entrenched power are at stake, and there has been four years of counterpositioning and backroom discussion leading up to the moment. Now, they go into detail here as to how it is that the things that Trump did are counter not just to the Democrat Party, but to the Republican Party, to the RNC as well, which is ultimately why it is that the, that the successes are irrelevant to them because the successes were largely successes that the average person felt they weren't geared towards serving corporations, serving international corporations, but instead America first. And that the real secret here is that not only is the DNC, but the RNC as well, that's who they ultimately serve. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read it, the piece in its entirety, but some of the important specifics of it coming up, and we will post it so you can go through it. It's not a terribly long read, uh, but it is. it, it, it just gives focus and, and clarity of what is really going on. Uh, within the Republican Party. Springfield's Talk 1041. I'm Nick Reed. You're listening to Nick Reed in the Morning on Springfield's Talk 1041. First alert forecast. Uh, there's a little bit of fog this morning. It will burn off, leaving us with sunshine, a high of 55. Tonight, cloudy, 45 for low, 66 tomorrow, and then dropping off Wednesday, sunshine, but a high of only 40. The, the core battle within the Republican Party, the last refuge, and you've got to 
you've got a number of challengers against the establishment. Uh, you know, there was an attempt uh, with Mitch McConnell, an attempt with McCarthy, though he definitely seems to be attempting to demonstrate that he is not going to do things the way that they have been done, uh, but that he is instead going to begin doing things in a more meaningful way, whether that will win over enough individuals uh, to to give that confidence. I, I don't know. But then you also have the RNC, the same you know, person that is just assumed to be in that position as well. Uh, you have Mike Lindell of my pillow, my slippers, my everything else, uh, saying that he's he's you know, or at least thinking about running, uh, asking uh, the viewers of his his podcast uh, whether or not uh, they they would support that. And and he notes very simplistically, but accurately. If we just keep doing the same thing over and over again with the same people over and over again, the same thing's going to happen. We've got to have new people in there. And I'm going to read just portions of this core battle within the Republican Party, The Last Refuge, that notes, listen, the RNC and the DNC, ultimately when it comes down to it, they serve the same masters. And it is, it's not Main Street USA. It's not the average worker. They note that the RNC wants to give the illusion of support for MAGA conservatism because they need the voter base and they need to maintain the illusion of choice. However, every move they make on an operational level is exactly in line with their previous outlook towards cocktail class republicanism. The MAGA base of support cannot trust this corporate group and we must not be blind or unguarded about the Machiavellian schemes they construct when you hear the influence groups saying the two priorities for control of the Republican club involve, one, eliminating populism in the ranks, and two, realigning with multinational corporation objectives vis-a-vis Wall Street. What they are publicly expressing is their RNC corporate need to get rid of the America First economic agenda, to get rid of the MAGA influence. How has this historically surfaced? Well, at a national level, there's this unique policy priority that almost every politician on both sides will avoid discussing. At the national level, a single policy priority determines all other national policy outlooks. That policy is the national economic policy. Now, as I read this to you, because this was the the evolution in my mind I went through, I thought, well, there's clear differences between the two. But when they begin, when the piece begins to note here for you what Trump did differently, it, it does come into focus that, oh, my gosh, it does in reality seem as if Republicans and Democrats in terms of establishment ultimately fall into the same category of economic policy. The national economic policy of a presidential candidate determines all other national policies that flow from that candidate. The national economic policy impacts the obvious policies like energy and trade and also determines the lesser obvious policies like regulation and even foreign policy. It is specifically because a candidate's national economic outlook impacts all other issues that most national politicians never talk about it. Now, you may be thinking, well, yes, they do. But listen. He notes it would be impossible to support Main Street USA, a popular talking point, and still support the Paris Climate Treaty, the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, or the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. To avoid the contradictions, most Democrat and Republican politicians avoid discussing their national economic policy. 
It is an unspoken rule within the billionaire club and donor game, an economic code of Omerta uh, amid most political candidates. President Trump broke that rule. He even went so far as to campaign on an American-first economic policy agenda. That core outlook forms the Make America Great Again Foundation. MAGA is based on a national economic policy outlook that determines every other national policy as carried by President Trump. While most Americans may not be able to articulate how the national economic policy impacts them, almost every American feels the consequences through gas prices, energy prices, employment, wage rates, and the expenses within their everyday lives. To try and hide this reality, often media and economic analysts will say that the U.S. president has no control over gas prices. However, this is unequivocally false. Yes, it is true that oil prices are determined by the global market for the product supply and demand. However, the energy policy of the president determines the domestic investment in natural resource development and extraction by oil, oil companies. The energy policy determines domestic supply. The regulatory policy determines the expansion, or lack therein, of oil and gas refinery capacity. So yes, it is ultimately the U.S. president who determines gasoline prices indirectly through energy and regulatory prices. If this were not the case, then gasoline would cost nearly the same in almost every nation, and it doesn't. Right now, gas in Mexico is almost a dollar less than gas in the United States, specifically because Mexican President Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador is not trying to reduce oil resource investment development and or gasoline refinery capacity. President Trump was the first presidential candidate who campaigned on domestic national economic policy. He even went one step further and stated the T word, tariffs. Yes, the Commerce Department holds tools to support a national economic policy. The tariff tool is another aspect to national economics that most politicians avoid discussing because the toolbox is counter to the interests of Wall Street, multinational corporations, and hedge fund managers. For a reference point, you might remember the apoplectic fits from financial and economic punditry to Trump's 2017 and 18 steel and aluminum tariffs. Economic security is determined by national economic policy. National security is also an outcome of national economic policy. Again, President Trump was also the first modern president to put the outlook to work when he said economic security is national security and then began constructing a foreign policy agenda using the cornerstone of national economic policy, the result was quite remarkably, or quite remarkable and led to what eventually became the Trump Doctrine. It was inherently the U.S. national economic policy that underpinned Trump's challenging NATO to meet their financial obligation. It was national economic policy that drove trade policy and created the North American USMCA trade agreement. It was national economic policy that led to countervailing duties on Chinese and European imports, which had the remarkable effect of actually lowering prices inside the United States. Now listen to what happened, because there was this whole idea that ultimately long-term tariffs were going to lead to an increase in price, right? Because here's how we think of it simplistically. If something comes into the United States that is $10 and tariffs adds $2 on it, we think that's $12. 
But what we're doing is assuming that the tariffs are not going to result in any sort of economic moves that lower the price of the product itself, right? So here's how it all played out. They, they note that we began importing deflation through lower-priced goods as the value of the dollar increased and China, EU central banks, devalued their currency in order to avoid the impact of the tariffs. See, this is what Trump understood. As much as they want to play him as some sort of buffoon, business he understands. And he deals with the international markets all the time. And so he recognizes what domino effect many of these moves would have. Asia and the other, or, and uh, the EU also, in addition to their banks devaluing their dollar, they also subsidized their export manufacturing with incentives in order to lower the cost as an offset to the tariffs, while simultaneously Asia and European companies began investing in production facilities inside the U.S. as a long-term approach to retaining access to the U.S. market. To put it succinctly, this was MAGA economics at work. Now, the reason that this is important is because all of those moves were not moves that the international corporations or the international banks wanted to make. It was not to their benefit to devalue their dollar. It was not to their be- well, it, they saw it as their benefit because of the tariffs that Trump put in place. You have a country that you know, exports to the United States. And they they fear they're going to deal with less of these, these you know, factories, these international corporations, uh, less product being moved because the price is higher, which means you're going to have uh, less people purchasing it. And so they would actually, their countries would subsidize these the production so that it would cost the the companies less and then the price could actually be lowered which we would ultimately benefit from here in the United States at the same time US wages increased US job growth increased US energy prices dropped with increased energy development and a massive cut in regulations and that in turn lowered the cost of domestic goods suddenly we were importing goods at lower prices and generating goods internally at lower prices. More MAGA-nomic outcomes, which not coincidentally was the exact opposite of all Wall Street claims and predictions. Making America Great Again was an outcome of national economic policy. At its core, MAGA is a national economic dynamic within a political movement that is represented by Trump. It is critical to understand that MAGA economic policy <clears throat> excuse me, is essential is essentially a national policy completely and uniquely under the control of the office of the president. The impact to the lives of Americans is a direct outcome from that policy. If a president wants to lead an independently wealthy country, he or she applies a very specific economic outlook to all other policy areas, including energy, regulation, and foreign policy. It is also true that opposition to Trump is uniquely connected to the American First Economic Agenda because it's multi-dollar lobbying firms like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable along with dozens of economically established super PACs funded by Wall Street and multinational corporations that are all vehemently opposed to that American First Economic Agenda because 
and this may seem overly simplistic because it's in the name, it puts Americans first. It is not about making sure that banks don't have to devalue their dollar in foreign countries. It's not about making sure other countries grow concerned because of policies that are going to encourage them to subsidize corporations in their country. And this is where past presidents, Republicans as well as Democrats, differed greatly from Trump. They write, in essence, if you take money from multinationals, you cannot deliver on MAGA economic outcomes for banking, trade, finance, etc., and that is exactly where we run into the problem. It is because the MAGA national economic priorities conflict with the multinational corporations, the head funds, and the Wall Street donor class. All of the politicians who accept the influence checks from these self-interested groups cannot run on or deliver a MAGA national economic agenda. Now, there's, there's more to the piece if you want to read it yourself. But what it affords us is a little bit of insight in a, in a very focused and specific manner as to why it is that the establishment dislikes Trump well beyond his tweets. See, that's how they translate it. To, that's how I mean, they can't get out there and claim. Well, we don't like Trump because the international corporations don't like him. We don't like Trump because other uh, the international banks don't like his policies because they're going to be so pro-American that it is going to cause them to have to get a, 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 a footing by making alterations and changes that aren't beneficial to their bottom line. They'll actually be serving the consumer, ultimately. And these relationships are so important to the establishment. And the, the, the constant attack on Trump about his tweets and his personality, and, oh, well, he had dinner with Kanye and all of these things, that is just a way to get us to understand why he's bad. Because they can't exactly tell us the truth on it. Anyhow, we'll get that piece. Like I said, you can read it, and, and it gives focus uh, as to really what it is. And, and I, when you look at it that way, will DeSantis be able to make those same moves? I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I, 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 with Trump, it wasn't simply about prioritizing the American people, but at the same time, because of his international business dealings, he knew what moves he had. That that was the street smart that he had. Those moves that would actually result in Americans benefiting. He'd be a great economic advisor to have. Springfield's Talk 1041. I'm Nick Reese. You're listening to Nick Reed in the morning on Springfield's Talk 1041. Now, speaking of Trump, this whole deal with Kanye West and this Mar-a-Lago dinner and, and Nick Fuentes, who is he's, he's labeled as a white supremacist. I, I don't know whether he declares himself one or not. I, I always get a little bit... Leery of the media labeling somebody as a white supremacist because of 
their view oftentimes that all white people are white supremacists. And, and so you, you, you just you don't know. I, I, I don't know. But but this this is causing a lot of angst amongst Republicans. Now, some are loving it because they feel like this is chipping away at him. It is making him look like a joke uh, because we're not talking about criticisms over uh, meeting with people that have a conservative agenda, smaller government or uh, constitutionally minded judges. It's like because I think a lot of people are like, why would you even do this? Why? And not, not, not that he can't. And I don't know why. Now, he's, he's, he's distancing himself. There's a piece in the Washington uh, Examiner, I believe this is, yes. Uh, former President Donald Trump further distanced himself from rapper Kanye West, calling him a seriously troubled man amid fallout from a dinner in which West brought along a controversial far-right figure. Trump has released several statements distancing himself from the rapper since the dinner last week, in which Kanye brought along three guests, including... Uh, the controversial far-right personality Nick Fuentes, who hosts the web show America First. In a Truth Social post, Trump went to his greatest lengths yet, calling Kanye, quote, a seriously troubled man who just happens to be black, and claimed he was only trying to help the likely 2024 presidential candidate with his problems. Trump wrote, quote, So I help a seriously troubled man who just happens to be black, ye, in parentheses, Kanye West, who has been decimated in his business and virtually everything else, and who has always been good to me by allowing his request for a meeting at Mar-a-Lago alone so that I can give him very much needed advice. He showed up with three people, two of which I did not know, the other a political person who I haven't seen in years. I told him, don't run for office, a total waste of time, can't win, fake news went crazy. Trump had previously confirmed the meeting with Kanye and Fuentes, though he claimed he did not know the far-right figure who came along as uh, a guest of Kanye. Trump would further write, Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, was asking me for advice concerning some of his difficulties, in particular having to do with his businesses. We also discussed, to a lesser extent, politics, where I told him he should definitely not run for president. Any votes you may have should vote for Trump. Anyway, we got along great. He expressed no anti-Semitism. <laughs> he expressed no anti-Semitism, and I appreciated all of the nice things he said about me on Tucker Carlson. Why wouldn't I agree to meet? Also, I didn't know Nick Fuentes. While many have questioned Trump's meeting with Kanye, who have come under recent uh, fire for the anti-Semitic statements and so forth, uh, most criticism is centered on the attendance of Fuentes. And so I, on one hand... It doesn't matter what Trump does. He's going to be criticized. On the other hand, I suspect a lot of Trump supporters see this sort of thing and see it as totally and completely unnecessary obstacles that he is is putting in his own way. All of this being said at the same time, I, I just loathe the fact that this is where we are in the country today. You know, once upon a time, people prided themselves on the ability to sit down and talk with people that had opposing viewpoints, even if they were vile. I mean, that that was a, a thing people oftentimes prided themselves on. You, you would have opposing, not just politically, but uh, you would have somebody that was an extreme racist. You know, Donahue would do this. Oprah would do this. Geraldo famously did it, and it turned into a, a brawl live on stage. But where they, they would get somebody that was a, a neo-Nazi and a skinhead and then somebody that was the opposite, and they would have them you know, express their – and you know, sit and point and counterpoint. But nowadays – 
well, if you're a Democrat, you're still allowed to, you know, have Al Sharpton on air, who's anti-Semitic, elect Ilhan Omar and put her in positions of power, who's anti-Semitic, uh, uh, still have meetings and, and uh, kiss the ring of Louis Farrakhan, who's proudly anti-Semitic. But if you're a Republican, I, they just get all over you and you can't even sit down and have a conversation with anyone. Because in the minds of the left, you're not even allowed to be friends with somebody who who you know is uh, diverse in perspectives in a way that they call hate speech or hate thought. And ultimately, we, we've gone from a country where it was agree to disagree. This was one of the great things about the country, that you could be friends with somebody who has the most vile thoughts ever because, hey, that's their mind and you can argue with them and discuss it and so forth. But you didn't try to run them out of society, and that's how we all got along, called a melting pot. But now with the totalitarian left in this country, I mean, it is just guilt by association. And, you know, as long as we continue to attack people for simply sitting down and having a conversation, even if they do say deplorable things, then you're always going to have the ruling class that gets to decide what is unacceptable speech and whom you are allowed to assemble with, to associate with, and, and they define these rules. And it's one of the reasons that they began defining the rules, because they get to decide, as leftists always have since the beginning of time, who lives, who dies, who gets to live where, who gets to own whom, who gets to kill whom, because they ultimately decide what people are good and what people are bad. Springfield's Talk 104.1. I'm Nick Reed.